0: This is Where We Live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nolbetanchel. Egypt is back in the news after its former president, Mohamed Morsi, the country's first freely elected leader, died last month. He collapsed in a courtroom while on trial for alleged espionage. Morsi's time in office was short just one year until he was ousted by a military coup led by Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, now Egypt's current president. Human rights organizations say Egyptian authorities consistently crack down on those who criticize the country's leadership. My next guest has seen that authoritarian firsthand when he joined other Egyptians more than a decade ago to call for democratic change in the Middle Eastern country. His actions would ultimately cause him to flee Egypt. Issam Barai is now a Connecticut resident. He joins me now in studio to talk about his experiences. Issam, welcome to where we live.
1: Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So tell me
0: about Egypt, uh, where you were born exactly, and, and a little bit about your upbringing.
1: Well, I was I was born in Cairo. Um, my family originally from Cairo. Uh, Cairo suburb, 20 minutes or 20 miles uh, north of Cairo. Um, and for education purposes and, and job uh, purposes, we moved from our home village to, to the city. It was very very beautiful time. Uh, Cairo is a very romantic city. Uh, by nature, uh, you have neighborhood like you have the, the uh, Islamic Cairo, you have the ancient Cairo, you have downtown Cairo, which uh, grasps the, the, um, the amazingness of the, uh, the European Paris and, and London uh, in the 1800s. So it's a very beautiful place. I, in that time, uh, uh, I grew up uh, writing poetry and, and uh, novels, right, for love and romance and stuff like that.
0: And your parents uh, supported your passion for the arts, for writing?
1: Uh, so well. They, they, they really did a very good job in, in supporting this because, uh, and this is something I really didn't realize that time, uh, they were so happy that I'm out of politics, that I'm not involved in politics. Politics was a forbidden topic. We're not allowed to talk about it. So they find their kid uh, who is so involved in so many beautiful things that will keep him safe. So they were so happy for that.
0: You mentioned politics was forbidden. They wanted you to remain safe. So let's talk about politically uh, what was going on uh, in Egypt during your upbringing and who was the leader at that time, a dictator. Well
1: in that time the country was ran by a dictator, Hosni Mubarak, who ran the country uh, for decades. And uh, he changed the country from a, uh, a civilian state to a, a police state that the police, the national security branch of the police was controlling every aspect of the life. Uh, and also in that time, Mubarak was getting old growing up. He was 75 years old and he was preparing his son to take over after him. So he he ignored the big files in Egypt, like economy, like health, education. He ignored all of those uh, files, and he just prepared the country, military, to accept his son to come after him, and that that was the the, the situation when I start reading after graduating uh, college, and I start noticing. No, life actually is not the romantic poem that I write on my papers every day. There is another ugly reality that I need be aware of.
0: So there's definitely an atmosphere of fear uh, to not be caught uh, speaking badly of, of the leaders uh, at the time. But what did you, um, again, recognize uh, when, as you mentioned, you went to school and you saw a different reality. And then when you graduated, what was life like for Egyptians? Uh, what was the economy like? How did people make a living? Uh, uh, did they have enough food on their table?
1: I would say we did have enough food on our, our tables. Uh, again, and in that time, I was uh, a middle-class kid who grew in, in a bubble. Uh, but after this, I realized there there's some people who really didn't have enough food uh, on the table. Um, our economy was going downhill. Uh, we were almost uh, like uh, very close to bankruptcy. Uh, in, in Egypt, uh, we didn't have any health system uh, whatsoever. In Egypt, the the, uh, the the numbers of kids in our classrooms uh, increasing significantly. Uh, in some points, you will have hundred kids in one classroom. Mubarak, in that time, switched all of the fund from education, health to uh, police equipment and military equipment to make sure. Uh, everyone is following the rules. There was no freedom of press, freedom of speech, freedom of gathering, freedom of organizing. That was the atmosphere I grew up in.
0: Uh, before you graduated college, uh, did you know of people who were either arrested or mistreated by the government?
1: Uh, yes, and I was always like, I was always wondering why would anyone put uh, himself or herself in that situation. We have a civilian opposition, as we call it, in in Egypt, Um, and there was, like, that much active, but the main uh, crackdown was against the Muslim Brotherhood in in Egypt in that time. There was, like, the most organized, uh, well-connected group in in Egypt, and they were very fairly active in that time. And uh, I had a neighbor, and my uncle, who was... Both of them are were mem- still members of the Muslim Brotherhood, and they suffered the same suffer that everyone else uh, had suffered in that in that time. And I was always wondering, like, why my uncle would do all of this to get arrested and be in away of his kids and family and loved ones, and will put all of his families through these things. I always wondered, uh, and I really didn't have. Um, enough knowledge in that time to understand uh, the reality of the situation. And that was my judgment in that time.
0: So when did the split happen for you?
1: The split happened after I started teaching and inter- reading more, interacting. Actually, um, the, the very first situation was was a really uh, funny one. Uh, when, they, when I got my very first salary in my life, uh, I was 21 years old. Um, and that day, uh, my mom came and, and, and she came to my room and I was getting ready to go hang out with my friends, celebrate my first salary. And, and my mom was like, congratulations. Now you're a man, you have a job, you have a salary. And, uh, yesterday I was visiting your uncle and he has a beautiful daughter. She'll be at a perfect wife for you. Uh, so I was no, that's too early. I'm still looking for my grad school. So I went to my, my, my friends that night playing video games. And I was like, guess what, guys? Today I had my first salary and my mom gave me a life. <laughs> uh, and I that's what I expected from them. I expected them to laugh. But their reaction was different. Their reaction was like, are you crazy? They told me you really need to wake up and get out of this bubble you live in. Uh, and go read and understand what's really going on in the country, and that was that was a shocking moment. And and those are my childhood friends, those people who will never lie to me, mm. and those are the people like they will laugh on the joke. So. I start reading. I trust them, and I start going out of my bubble. I start reaching out to more people. I start reaching to different parties in in the country and read international reports about Egypt and open my mind more and more and get to realize the situation. Mm.
0: So remind me what year
1: this was. Um, That was 2007.
0: 2007. Mm -hmm. Yep. So when did you go from... You know, passively just uh, becoming uh, more educated uh, by reading what was really going on in your country and how citizens were being treated, to then being an active participant in protesting for change.
1: A few, <clears throat> a few months after uh, my conversation with my friends, that was uh, I, I started reaching out. It was it was a beautiful movement in that time called Kefaya. Kefaya in Egyptian is enough. So, Kifaya movement in that time was was a mix of group of uh, labor l- labor unions, um, uh, sc- uh, university professors, teachers, community leaders, political leaders, and stuff like that. They ca- they came together to to build a grassroots movement in Egypt again is Mubarak and they were targeting the uh, passing power from Mubarak the father to Mubarak the son and that was their main goal. and, and I, I started um, in that time my, my understanding was that is a great goal but that will not end the problem because the problem we have actually is the regime itself, not who leads the regime, not who leads the system. The problem is is the system. That was the problem. So a few months after that, uh, I had my very first uh, protest. That was that was my first time, and we were only only seven people. Uh, our that was 2007. Um, seven young people. The oldest was 21. The youngest was 19. In that time, um, and we came together because we refused to fight against one issue, which is passing power from a generation to another. We came here protesting in front of the, Supreme, the Egyptian Supreme Court, Cairo downtown, to ask Mubarak to step down. And that was something unheard of in Egypt. This is where we live,
0: from Connecticut Public Radio. Today, we're hearing from Connecticut resident Isam Barai. He grew up in Egypt under a dictatorship. He's sharing with us how he got involved in protests calling for democracy in his country, but his decision would change his life forever. How dangerous was that for you to do?
1: Uh, it was It was very dangerous to the moment that, to the level that the night before, the seven of us came together for the last time to make sure we understand what we're going through. Like we were preparing ourselves for everything. We said that might end... Um, in zero effect at all uh, our 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 protest also that might end in a very dangerous way we were we were prepared for that and we were at uh, uh the the first 5 10 to 10 minutes of our protest went peacefully no one and i mean it like no one even looked at us in the street those seven people seven young kids standing yelling down mubarak and cott uh, yaskut, yaskut, hasnbarak and, barek, and y- y- we like you know all of those things the reality is no one paid any attention to us but the police did and uh, they started chasing us uh i I was arrested in that time uh, you were arrested yes yes that that night yes i I was arrested and and it's when you get arrested in egypt it's not fun <laughs> so tell us what happened to you so um when when you when you get arrested in a, in in a places like United States, you still have level of protection and and rights that will be will be protected by everyone, but in in countries like like Egypt or or other other dictatorship, you have zero uh, rights. So what happened with me? Actually, the, the the second I was arrested, I was like I was tortured right away. Like the, the the police officer who who caught me just just like bunching me by his hands, beating me by his foot. Uh, yelling at me like as many bad words as you can imagine son of a blah blah and like took me to uh to a car that um looks exactly like a middle box like a, a tuna box exactly and y- you get there and and y- you stay there in the summer of cairo uh you are in a middle box for few hours like you will feel how chicken feels in a microwave Uh, it's so hot and and they keep you inside just to humiliate you and the whole idea of that is just to break you down to break your will and and deliver a message that the president is a red line you can't cross if you will ever challenge this if you are a 19 years old kid if you are a, a political leader if you're whatever if you will cross that, that line, you're in trouble. Uh, and that was the message. But it didn't work with us, apparently. How long uh, were you held before you were released? Before the revolution, I get arrested a few times. Uh, and and every time we varied from uh, sometimes a few weeks to a few hours, a few days. Uh, it depends on, on the situation in that time.
0: So you were arrested several times and uh, you started it uh, was part of a small group. How did uh, the level of protest change between 2007 up until the revolution in January of 2011?
1: So in that time we really worked so hard as a grassroots movement and the big break was a year and a half after that day. In April 6, 2008, that was that was a huge day in, in, in Egyptian history and uh we it was a big, huge strike in North Cairo in the uh, labor capital of, of Egypt, like a coalition from the young people, in, the youth in Egypt and the labor unions in Egypt and in the, in the labor capital uh, of Egypt in Mahalla Kubra. And um, that for the first time, you had hundreds of thousands of of people protesting against the president himself. And the significance of this uh, protest beside the huge numbers of people was that for the first time, people actually Egyptians actually took down the portrait of the president in the entrance of the city. in, in dictatorships, the president will have his picture in every single corner in the in the country and to take this down, this is the symbol of taking the president himself down. After that, people started being more aware of the youth movement and a lot of youth movements start. Uh, growing after that day and people started like having more interesting uh, of joining and doing something and attend a protest. We ended up from having seven people in one protest to maybe mm-hmm. have 20 or maybe 50 people in one in one protest and that was significant
0: that was my next question i was wondering who the demonstrators were so primarily they were young people both men and women
1: yes yes uh our our movement was equally men and women all all the way my very first protest i had two women um two of my my female friends with was with me in my first protest since day one and we were always always empowered by them from that day till the day i was in the cage uh weeks before i leave egypt
0: um going back to 2008 when this huge demonstration happened uh, very symbolic when you mentioned uh the picture of hosni mubarak being torn down how did the government respond then oh my goodness
1: uh so the the government responded very heavily in that time uh we were the protesters were seized by uh, uh militant troops in, in in egypt and this, they started beating they used uh tear gas as water uh, tanks to divide the people, and they seized the town. They locked the city for days and days and days to make sure that it's, it's quiet. A lot of people were arrested. A lot of people were in jail. So the crackdown in the movement was very heavily, and uh, we also experienced the the entrance of the intelligence in that time so in in that time an office related to the police was leading and controlling everything now mubarak actually put all of his way on on the on the battle by entering The the military intelligence and the the CIA branch of the the Egyptian military to control uh, those kids, as he he liked to call us all the time.
0: Can I ask uh, during this time, you know, what did your, did your family know what was going on and what was the reaction? Because earlier you told me they were preparing you for a traditional life.
1: Uh, for the most part, my family didn't know anything. For the most part, but you know, when I when I get arrested, they will know, uh, and they always wanted to keep it um, secret. Uh, we don't wanna make the repetition. We wanna we don't wanna have the repetition that our our kid is involved in, in because it's still shame to be in in, in jail. Um, I was not ashamed of that all. Uh, my family were not s- that much supportive of my activism, and this is why I kept it secret for the most part. Uh, but they always were begging me to stop, especially every time uh, I get uh, like fired from a job. I was fired of every, uh, almost every single job I had in, in Egypt, and people it intentionally refused to hire me because of my uh, my file. Um, so they knew about all of this, and they were not supportive at all. They always begged me to stop whatever I'm I'm doing.
0: Hmm. Was it painful for you to have to hide that um, from your family until the next time you were
1: arrested? It was. It was very painful because when you work for an underground uh, movement, a grassroots movement, the the people you and share with and you can trust really narrowed like you cannot share everything with everyone for their own safety for for your own safety for for so many reasons you really have very very limited people to share with and sometimes you always in your weak time you, your weak moments you are always looking for a support system and uh, my family was that support system and i could not use them on those situations so it was it was very painful
0: this is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchil. Today we're hearing from Connecticut resident Issam Barai. Before the Arab Spring, he joined other young Egyptians protesting for political change. His decision was not the path his parents wanted him to take. Coming up, we learn what happened to Issam after the revolution in Egypt, January 25th, 2011. And later, why his activism would force him to leave his family and his country. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanshal. More than eight years ago, on January 25th, tens of thousands of Egyptians gathered in Tahrir Square, demanding an end to President Hosni Mubarak's longtime dictatorship and an improvement to the economic distress plaguing the country. Issam Barayi was one of those protesters. He now lives in Connecticut. But today, he's in studio to talk about the revolution and why he gave up so much to see change in Egypt. I asked him where he was when the massive protests began.
1: At that time, I was in Cairo downtown. I remember very well the, the night before January 25th, I was with a friend of mine in Tahrir Square, and we witnessed uh, the preparation of the uh, the security forces, the police uh, and the militant troops, how they start like, occupying the Tahrir Square and seizing everything and blocking all of the entrance and, and the exits and everything. Um, so, and in that time, I was in Cairo with my friends, preparing and just dis- discussing what would we do in that time, and and also the whole preparation of writing down some steps for. If I will die, if you would find my body, uh, this call this number and this is the name of the person and this is the message you should deliver and this is my address and this is my family. Uh, all of those messages. And y- you always keep on your cell phone a draft message on my cell phone ready to be sent and all of the numbers, uh, you if you get arrested or anything, just one word or two words like help just to hit send in one second so all of those preparation emotionally and mentally before i go uh to participate in that day i i got the i, I did all of the rituals of of mm. according to the, the the muslim beliefs uh that when you did a new move from this world to the next one and all of those rituals, like basically saying goodbye to this life because you're not not—you're not sure if you'll come back mm-hmm. or not. And you have yeah. all of those steps.
0: Can I ask what your message was to your family if something had happened to you?
1: Uh, I, I remember I was writing, sorry, um, I know you asked me to stop this, but uh, now we cannot do anything but forgive each other and say I love you. Mm-hmm.
0: When you saw the number of people that gathered uh, to protest again, they wanted to see Jose Mubarak step down. Were you amazed at the turnout?
1: I was amazed to tears in that day. How in, in five years, we started from seven young people to now millions of millions in each street, every town and every city in Egypt, people who are chanting the same exact words that we started five years ago. When we were protesting in front of the Supreme Court, just seven young people, no one cared about us. Now you have those millions of people around your dream. It was a moment full of pride, tears, surprise,
0: at the same time, were you fearful of the instability uh, that would come, and what would happen to your country, or were you feeling optimistic that this was now the moment for free elections?
1: I was optimistic. When you see those, all of those numbers of people are now in the love of their country, you have to be optimistic. But we didn't have an answer to the question of what comes next, and that was our main. Uh, mistake
0: so what happened in the days and weeks after again Hosni Mubarak uh, stepped down what was your sense when you saw the different political parties stepping forward and uh, again this idea that that maybe there could be free elections uh, so what happened was there still unrest on the streets
1: um, it was no arrest in the shooting that time and w- we were we were so aware of the fact that uh, revolution is not ruling. And uh, was the, the old regime still in power? Because after Mubarak was gone, the military took over after that. And they promised they will have an early election in Egypt within six months. And two years passed by and we didn't have election for for, for two years. So we couldn't have break in that time. So in that time, I was working uh, uh, as my as part of my job to promote democracy and, and advocate for the election. But also in the same time as part of my activism, I was working with other groups and political parties and other, other activists and other, other stakeholders in, in the country to push for election. And that was our main goal. We needed the revolution to come to power. People who believe in the revolution, believe in the principles that we went out for, and the, the military was not the one to, to trust to be able to to achieve those goals. And that was our main uh, work in that time and we, uh, we did a great job that for the first time in the country we had the most free election with the highest percentage of turnout in, in our history which was uh, i think it was above 50% uh turnout which which in uh, in egypt is unheard of uh, and that was how much people trusted in the political process i do remember people standing for 6 hours 6 hours straight in line waiting in front of the polling stations to vote to cast their votes uh under the rain i remember that day it was raining so hard i was like it barely rains in egypt why mm-hmm. today uh but p- people never gave up i have people for 6 hours i was monitoring a, the election in that day all over the country. And uh, for, for six hours, we had people waiting online to cast their votes under the rain. Mm. Uh,
0: why, why was there that level of trust considering the past history um, of uh, elections uh, and this idea that, the mil- that you know, whether the military or someone would be
1: interfering in that process? Because people believed it was ours for the first time. Uh, before the revolution, Mubarak used to own the election, putting all of his uh, police in every polling station, and uh, no one whatsoever will be able to freely uh, cast his or her vote. Uh, and always, we we have a lot of things that after the after the election day, you will see the ballots on the river, you will see the ballots on uh, trash cans. So people before the revolution had the feeling that my vote doesn't count. My vote doesn't matter. But after the revision, they believed it's ours. We actually gave our blood, our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones to this. So it's our blood and it's ours now. Mm -hmm. People made sure that pallets will arrive on time. Pulling stations are secured. I will be there and make sure I cast my secret pallets. It was a a full people-owned process that people really trusted in themselves and in the process for the first time. And this is why you had this huge, huge turnout.
0: So what was your reaction? How did you respond when Mohammed Morsi, um, who was backed by the Muslim Brotherhood,
1: became the president? I I was very neutral. My feeling to Mohammed Morsi, I was against his opponent. I did vote for another candidate who I, I believed was the most uh, representative of the revolution, was young, was uh, progressive, was well-hearted, didn't belong to the, the the previous regime whatsoever. When it came to only the last two candidates, the, the last two finals, Shafi and Morsi, I did not support Shafi. I was so opposing to Shafi, but I did not Trust Morsi as well, and that was because uh, uh, the history of the Muslim Brotherhood from the day of the revolution until the two years that the, the day that Morsi was elected, they have had with they have betrayed our trust for many many in many many occasions, and this is why we couldn't trust them anymore.
0: This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. Today we're hearing from Connecticut resident Issam Barai about life before and after the Egyptian revolution in 2011. He was one of the young Egyptians who protested for free elections. So at the time, and you were working for uh, this pro democracy group, International Republican Institute, is that correct?
1: Uh, I joined that group after the revolution. So after Mubarak was ousted, then I joined uh, the, the IRI. It it's, was part of the uh, USAID projects uh, in, uh, in Egypt to promote democracy, and I was working in, on a, in a project to help youth, uh, Egyptian youth, and actually Middle Eastern youth. Um, to be more engaged in in politics, how to understand politics, how to be a candidate, how to to run a campaign, how to gain support. And that is a project I started working on after the revolution.
0: So your activism continued, and that led you to being
1: arrested even after the revolution. That's true. So uh, working for human rights in Egypt, it's a crime. Uh, Before the revolution, after the revolution, it does not matter. It's still a crime. Uh, In that time, after the revolution, I was so motivated to change my country and go take things my my way. And I was preparing f- to run for the Egyptian Senate in that time. And also in that time, the military started, wanted to uh, push back again is the revolution and the revolution powers in Egypt, the youth movement, the the, the youth leaders, they wanted to really to end up this movement and push the election back as much, as long as they could. Uh, so the first crackdown against the revolution powers was the, the human rights organizations in, in Egypt. That was the first step from the military, again, is the revolutions. So, uh, working for a human rights, a rights organization, uh, I was arrested again because of that. One day, I was in my office, and they attacked my office and took everything. Uh, they even took my my trash can. They they literally took it. They took my laptops, everything. They took everything away. And uh, among other friends, I was sent to the criminal court in Egypt.
0: So how were you treated uh, while you were
1: detained and and what happened
0: once you had to go to trial?
1: So um, just to give you, uh, to see the scene, I was in the cage in the courtroom. Uh, Outside of the cage were the three judges in the criminal court to judge us, then the two prosecutors and uh, was the the government lawyers, which they were joined by 20 or 25 other lawyers against us. Uh, because we were uh, spy, CIA agent, uh, I betrayed my country. The whole revolution was American trap and all of those things. Um, and outside of the courtroom was a lot of um, uh, government supporters yelling death to me. It was a very scary moment. And, and my mom couldn't couldn't go to the court with me, so they were watching on TV. And uh, a lot of lawyers and attorneys against us who's like asking death penalties because our crime on paper was working for a human rights organization, but all the media in Egypt, state-controlled media, uh, was talking about our crime as be, uh, being spies and agents for the CIA. So when my mom, someone who never been in court before, never studied law, or never even went to college in her life, will see like those twenty-five very fancy lawyers will asking for death penalty for her youngest baby. It's very scary. Uh, one of my friends went to, to one of those lawyers and, I, and I told him, Could you please not pronounce the word death penalty? Just mention the, 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 the number of the article in and the law. Like say like I would like him to be punished according to the article twenty-five of the criminal law. Uh, we all know this is the death penalty, but his mom, home, will not be that so much afraid about her son. And his his response was, "Didn't he think of his mom when he betrayed his country?" Like we did not betray our country. Read the papers. The official paper says our crime was working for a human rights organization. Yeah. So how did you get out of that, Isam? So uh, the, the 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 trial lasted for 18 months. Um, and I was released after that and we know we know uh we will be phoneical I, I I refused to uh, like I refused any other scenario but stay in in Egypt and uh fight till the last moment to prove myself innocent, uh clear my name uh but after after that the trial was waiting for the verdict uh things seemed not promising. So my friends came and they advised me, I need to leave the country. So the message was, if you will go back to prison, no one knows when you will be able to leave. The ill treatment in prison will literally kill you. You will be at the best case scenario, you will be paralyzed in prison. And we have a lot of cases like this, people who lost their sights, people who were left prison paralyzed, or even people even died in prison uh, in Egypt. Um, so I, I decided to have the conversation with my family. So I went to my, to my parents and I, I had the, the, the most painful conversation anyone would ever have uh, was, was his parents. So I was talking to my parents and I told them, this is the situation and I don't know what to do. And pretty much you need to uh, say it quickly because you don't have enough time. Um, the judge will send the, the, the verdict to the airport and I will be locked from leaving the country or will will add me to whatever list, wanted list or whatever. So I need to move quickly. Um, and my, my dad was like, leave. Uh, at least you will be safe and free. Um, So I told okay, I will leave, but I don't know uh, when I will be able to come back. And also, I might not be able to come back ever. I didn't have enough time to say goodbyes for my family, but I could clearly see in my mom's eyes all of those questions. Like, remember when I asked you to take a different path and get married, have kids and be happy and safe and stay with us forever, but you chose the other direction and, and now... We're talking about choosing between prison or exile. It was very painful moment, and and the the main pain of that so you didn't even have time to, to to say goodbye properly, or to express how much you love them, or uh, to even state your case. Why did you did this for for a bigger reason beyond your own safety or beyond your own life? Uh, that was very very painful and took my, my first plane, the first plane leaving the country, and uh, came here.
0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall My guest today is Isam Barai, a Connecticut resident who was one of the many young Egyptians who protested for change in their country. After the break, we'll hear about why he fled Egypt and how he restarted his life in the U.S. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpithanshal. Issam Barahi protested for change in Egypt. His actions were dangerous under a dictatorship, and he was arrested multiple times. When Egyptian authorities put him on trial, accusing him of being a U.S. spy, he knew he had to flee the country to avoid a life in prison, or worse, death. I asked Issam what was going through his mind after he was forced to leave his family and the life that he'd known.
1: So before I, I I came to DC my the first one evening was to Amsterdam and in Amsterdam I had 6 hours waiting so that was the first time I had I've had enough time to reflect on what's going on in my life and uh f- f- I I remember I remembered all of the the childhood memories uh, uh all of organizing times and my friend who was killed uh, in front of my eyes and, and during the revolution in my arms, uh, but I, I asked myself a basic question, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna stay here, keep crying and 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 vanish and and just losing everything? I, lo- I lost my name, my dignity, my 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 innocence, my country, my everything, my money. I, I lost everything, and now I have nothing. Should I keep going or s- stay crying? And I decided to choose to go as the second option and and keep moving. but. I didn't have enough money, and I didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any other language but Arabic, which mm-hmm. is my, my native language. And I, I, I even couldn't ask someone in the airport what to do or where to go because I didn't have any English on me. Uh, and that was the the, the biggest challenge. And I, I didn't have enough money, but the concern was uh, how to communicate with people and how to go to immigration and apply to uh, to immigration
0: was your uh, goal then to come to the U.S. and apply for asylum? Was that the the route that you could take given the um, the persecution that you experienced in Egypt?
1: Uh, not really. Uh, uh, when I came, I was I was so hoping that things will will end very soon, and I will be able to go back to country and run for an office again and be a president in Egypt. And that was that was the uh, that, the full plan. And I, I spent, uh, no, I never, never, no, that was not. But a few weeks after I arrived uh, to the United States, the coup happened in Egypt. And now the the man in power who, who was the man actually who um, moved the trial against me in the first place. like that, So this is El Sisi. Yes, President El Sisi now. Uh, in that time, back in 2012, the, when my my trial started he was the head of the military intelligence and uh according to to the to the the, the the trial papers the main report against us was coming from his office signed by his name so now the guy who accused me of all of those things he's in charge now so things are not moving back and this is when I decided to, uh, to just I'm, I'm, I'm staying here. So that was the moment.
0: So you left your country in late spring of 2013. There's actually a tweet from uh, now late Senator John McCain. Uh, there's a picture of you standing with him in Senator McCain's office. Uh, the tweet saying, great visit with IRI Global, uh, hashtag NGO workers, wrongly prosecuted by the government of Egypt, and there you are. So behind the scenes was Senator McCain's office working to help help uh you and and others that were being wrongly prosecuted? Yes.
1: Uh yes, Senator McCain uh was one of the of the main uh people in the in the capital Helen DC who were fully aware of the actual situation in Egypt and really supported um, human rights and supported our trials, supported us. And and that was a very beautiful moment of him to be the first one and to to reach out to us and invite us and and talk about these things. Um, And we've worked, he he came, I I met him in in Egypt uh, right after the revolution, I met him in Egypt and he showed a lot of support and he always fought for for our situation. And it was a beautiful uh, touch of him to, to show his support in his office.
0: Eventually, would you apply for asylum?
1: I did apply for asylum in 2013 uh, after the, the after the coup against Morsi. I did apply for asylum, and now I'm a green card holder.
0: Mm. Uh, what's it like for you now uh, to be living here now for uh, several years? I'm under the impression that you have not been able to go back to Egypt.
1: No. Yeah. I I, I still have uh, I still have a lot of concerns to go back to Egypt, uh, even. Um, Officially, uh, I was acquitted a few months ago, but the atmosphere in Egypt is still not promising, still very scary and and not safe for me to go back to, to Egypt. So I have been here. I've been here since then. I consider here now home. Uh, and this is the only where I can go, the only way I can live uh, and enjoy my my freedom.
0: Oh, after you left Egypt, when was the first time you were able to communicate with your family?
1: Uh, uh, it was really right right away. Like thanks to the internet. Thank thanks to the internet again. <laughs> uh, we're we're able to communicate uh, on daily basis and and almost uh, almost right away. Um, they had to reach out to me because. Uh, my dad, after I left, and after all of the newspaper in Egypt, he blasted my name as a criminal, as a CIA, all of those bad things that were not true. Uh, my dad really couldn't handle these things, and he got very sick, and he died right after that. So, I'm sorry uh, to hear that. thank you. So that was one of the first, very, very first calls I I had, and and uh, being uh, struggling with an immigrant life here in the United States and then get this bad news from Egypt and can't go back to to attend your father's funeral or be there for the family and I didn't have a chance to do that so that was very very tough moment also on me Mm -hmm. that was the one of the very, very tough moments for me in the United States.
0: Uh, talk about your transition, Isam. Uh, so you uh, ended up applying for asylum, but you still had to learn English, you still had to find a <laughs> job, you still had to find a place to live. How did you do it? Who did you know?
1: Um, I started reaching to a lot of a lot of great people uh, in, in in DC, uh, amazing friends who uh, who helped me to uh, go to school in DC uh, language school. I had the chance to study English for three months, and then I had to learn to learn on my own. I started reaching out to some people I've met in different occasions and asked asking, asking them for help. I found a lawyer who was familiar uh, immigration lawyer who was familiar with the case in Egypt to help me to submit my application for 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 the immigration and uh, then I, I got my my work authorization What was your first job? Uh my very first job, I, I did work for the United States Institute of Peace, and this is a think tank created and funded by the US Congress to advise the uh, the American uh, decision makers uh, on how to solve the the world problems in a peaceful way.
0: I understand it was not a, a direct path from DC to Connecticut. You ended up uh, in <laughs> Iowa, of all places. Can you tell us uh, uh, how you ended up there?
1: I missed the activism so much, and uh, I miss being in the field and organizing, and and a friend of mine was in D.C. in that time having a uh, a lunch with me and talking about a uh, a new job he got. Uh, and he offered me if I'd be able to work with him. And he told me he's the campaign manager for someone called Bernie Sanders uh, at that time that I had no idea who he was. Uh, but I trusted my friend, and uh, he, he gave me my ideal job of like back again to be an organizer and activist and all of those things. But his uh, his condition was to move to Iowa. So um, I took the job. I, I moved to Iowa. And uh, for the first time, I knew that America is not all New York, Chicago, L.A. Now you guys have a lot of Unheard of places in your—it's ne- like you lied to me. If you you said the job in America, you lied to me. <laughs> so I experienced how to drive in for six hours or three, four hours in just nothing but cornfields.
0: Eventually, you for would meet your time. wife.
1: Yes, yes. I for this job, I met my wife. Uh, so uh, there was a positive. It was a yeah. Uh, I uh, I met my uh, Emmy Award winner wife, uh, Emma Wilson. And in Iowa, um, it was looking for, for volunteers to volunteer for, for the campaign. And we uh, part of my job was reaching out to school uh, students. And a friend of mine was telling me, if you'd like to get a hand off this school, this is the one you should know. And he he winked with his eyes and he said, and I know she'll like you. <laughs> uh, I I did not understand what did he mean about this like, so we went we met and um, we really did not uh, talk about Bernie at all. I remember that day. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. We did not. It was, it was not a professional moment at all. We started talking about everything else. Everything but, but Bernie. <laughs> but Bernie. We talking about Egypt about about my my background, her background, uh, politics, election, revolution, the coup, everything. And we just started talking, talking, and and now I I understood why my friend told me she'd like you and before we left it was like want to have coffee with me and she never volunteered for Bernie Sanders after that
0: <laughs> so eventually you uh, came to Connecticut you've been here for about a year and a half yes. but let's talk about Egypt today because of all of the um, effort uh, and uh, time that you put into working towards change in your native country uh, things didn't get better uh, after you left they actually got worse um, Morsi being uh, taken out of power, as you mentioned, by this coup led by uh, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, he is now still uh, the president of Egypt, increasingly uh, um, autocratic. Um, are you
1: discouraged uh,
0: by uh, what you see continuing in your native country?
1: After after um, uh, President Sisi led a coup against the president, he said, I'm not running for president. Of course, no one believed him. Um and you can see now we're going back again to the same, uh, the same environment, the same atmosphere that we've, we, we've experienced before the revolution, before 2012, uh, under under Mubarak, and even before that, um, we have zero uh, freedoms anymore. Again, uh, no freedom of speech, no freedom of of. Meaning all of the newspaper, if you if they will mention anything that does not uh, fit the, the, the state policy, they would be locked. And, and we have a lot of blocked uh, websites. Um, uh, in, in, in Egypt, we have more than 60,000 people, 60,000 people in prison with no trial, with no charges, with nothing, but for political reasons, who, who support the, the President um, Mohammed Morsi, uh, or any other reasons. And even now, the crackdown against the revolution power is still, till today, people who do not belong to the Muslim Brotherhood or, or any other force, but they do, do believe in the revolution, and they do believe in free election, and they believe in human rights. They also in prison, till like yesterday, people were arrested for that reason.
0: So what do you think
1: the future holds
0: for Egypt? You believe in
1: democracy. Can that happen again? Uh, It can. Of course it can. Uh, The the future uh, in Egypt, actually, as I see it is... Two parts. The first part is the uh, the near future, and that I, I do believe things will go down very very bad, and the collapse in our economy and our uh, political environment and atmosphere will be will will hurt a lot of people in in, in Egypt. Um, so this is the near future. Uh, we'll see that the, the huge collapse in, in, in Egypt, and that will be very bad, not only for for Egypt or for the region, but also for Europe and the other pla- the whole entire world. Uh, and this is why I am always feel sad when I see that, that the American regime or the American administration will stand in support of a dictator uh, and dictatorship uh, in Egypt or elsewhere uh, against the American principles, um, against the uh, freedom, human rights, freedom of speech. Uh, that, that bothers me a lot, and that actually hurts the people and does not help the, the, the American image. The far future, I do believe we will be able to, uh, we, we will achieve democracy because the the generation that believes so much in freedom and human rights, uh, I think will take over and they will now be going back after that.
0: Isam Barahi again is a Connecticut resident originally from Egypt. Isam, thank you for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nolpathanchel. Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. You can listen to the show anytime by downloading our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Just search where we live. As always, thanks for listening.